Well, hey, Cozy Robots. It's me, Mike McCarg, host of the Cozy Robot Show, a program about empathetic skepticism. Uh, that way we combine our critical thinking skills with an understanding of our feelings and other people's feelings. We try to build a better world together. It's so good to see all of you tonight here on the internet. And uh, we are changing up the program in a really big way this week. Here's why. We heard your comments and your feedback that you'd like to have more question and answer as a part of the show. And we told you we could do that if you sent us lots and lots of questions. And you did. We have been really, really amazed and impressed by how many people have been sending in questions and comments and places in which they feel curious. And we're going to explore that together. But we had to make some logistical changes. So I don't know if you noticed we had a fancy new countdown this week and no uh, title card. That's because we're changing the format of the show. We're going to bring that stuff back like anyone even cares other than me. Uh, but what you don't know is that there's an incredible amount of technical complexity in doing this show live every week because there's a team that makes the Cozy Robot show happen. And so you see me talking here into the camera like, I always do, but I'm looking at a teleprompter, and I see questions and comments come in, re in real time from the rest of the Cozy Robot team. So we thought it would be easier and maybe more fun if we brought some of the people behind the show in front of the camera. So it is my honor and my privilege this week to introduce you to some new faces and new voices on the show that are going to help host these conversations with me and as we explore curiosity and empathetic skepticism together. So first, I'd like to introduce you to Victory Palmazano, who uh, runs our show and is our show's <laughs> producer. And I just want you can all see her wonderful face here. And for those of you listening. Hi, everybody. <laughs> that's what Victory sounds like. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, I'm oh, glad gosh, to be here. Like, th I'd say thanks for having me, except you, like, literally came up with the show, the name of the show. Like, That's true, so actually. <laughs> it really can't be overstated. Um, we originally had a vision for a variety show with a studio audience, and then COVID yep. hit, and here we are exploring different ways to do this on the internet. I'd also like to introduce you to another member of our team that a lot of you have kind of met virtually online already. That's Grace Vaughn, our social media manager. Hi, everybody. Hi. <laughs> and Grace is going to handle kind of uh, interacting with you during the show. So when you put questions in the chat, anywhere you're watching, Grace is the one that will see your question and relay it back to me here. And we'll talk about whatever you'd like to talk about tonight. That's the whole format of tonight's episode, by the way, is going to be question and answer. So we, we've got some questions you've sent in already via Instagram and Twitter and other social media platforms, I guess. I actually don't even know where the questions came from. <laughs> Uh, Grace knows exactly where the questions came from. And um, and I, I don't know, since since it's kind of a, maybe the first time for some of you getting to know Victory and Grace, um, I'd love to start with a little humanizing activity. Uh, it has been, since the last Cozy Robot show, a lot has happened. The presidential vote was certified following an insurrectionist mob at the U.S. Capitol <laughs> was kind of a major yep. point. Um, we've hit a record number of uh, daily deaths and new cases and hospitalizations from a global pandemic. So this has been a very, very, very challenging week. Victory, how are you feeling? I am feeling probably like a lot of people, uh, really sad and uh, overwhelmed. I toggle back and forth between Twitter and news feeds and social media. And, uh, it's a lot to take in. And I just, yeah, I feel sad. I feel scared. I feel worried about the future. Um, yeah, not great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well stated. <laughs> And Wolf Thank you. Thank you. Grace, um, how are you? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I second that. I feel really anxious about it. And like uh, Victory was saying, I'm on social media all the time and seeing doom scrolling is, is hard, um, especially with everything in the news. So yeah, feeling very anxious. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, Mike, we got a lot of questions, uh, which Grace can tell you more about than I can, but I got to take a peek at the questions and we got a lot of questions from a lot of people, um, asking how you are doing and mm. what you think about the events of last week. Um, so tell Gosh, us. I, I am so proud of myself because I am here, like right now, mm-hmm. and uh, present and basically functional. <laughs> so I want to start by saying, like, I, I feel really good about some of the the efforts I've made to um, get a handle on some of my, my my trauma behaviors, my coping strategies. You know, I probably only ate a package of Oreo cookies since Wednesday, and that's pretty good. That's, like, really good. It's really good because, you know, I've been on social media more in the last week than I think I have been in a very long time. Mm -hmm. Part of that's a coping strategy. And then the other thing is to try to help. I'm good at giving language to thoughts and feelings, and I've been trying to help people by uh, offering them language if it's helpful or useful and how they've been approaching this truly overwhelming and terrifying situation we're facing in our world. I mean, as we looked at images of armed mobs of white people storming the U.S. Capitol to interfere with our normal, frankly, boring political process. You know, just a few weeks ago, we did a show on what a non-event certifying the presidential uh, electoral college results would be. It's a formality every year. Most people in Congress who've done this can't even remember they part they played in it because it's such a non-event every four years. One of the most important and least memorable things the U.S. Congress does is certify the results of the Electoral College. And I expected perhaps we might see some, um, some violent unrest in our streets. That was my concern, was that... Uh, White nationalists would co-opt the street presence that change movements often put together and then put a violent edge on it, that we might see people physically assaulted. We might even see gun violence. That was kind of the deepest concern that I had. And then to see instead people singing the national anthem as they grabbed police officers one by one and pulled them through the front doors of the Capitol and beat them with Donald Trump flags. I will admit there were moments last Wednesday when I thought, well, this is it. This is how this country ends. And then I saw something remarkable in the aftermath of that event. I thought perhaps some level of sanity is returning to our national discourse as I watched Republican after Republican denounce and try to distance themselves from that terrible and violent event. We had this brief period of relative sanity. And then Donald Trump was banned from Twitter and this free speech network called Parler that mainly hosts neo-Nazi and white supremacist activity was delisted and deplatformed by Apple and Google and ultimately by Amazon, simultaneously doing public good and raising really troubling questions about the control corporate media plays in our lives and in our world. And I, I got hopeful. I really did. But I'm watching right now as some Democrats and 
many Republicans alike, try to return to some kind of business-as-usual approach in the United States. And I just don't think that's A, possible, or B, wise. There was a failed coup in Germany in 1923. And as a result of his role in that movement, Adolf Hitler was put in prison. In 1923, 10 years later, the Nazi party took over the German government. With only a third of the population support and only a third of the legislative chamber because extremists, nationalists, and fascists don't play fair and don't play by the rules, even the disappointing, corrupt, and oppressive rules America currently operates under. Our system is in no way fair to black Americans or native, indigenous, and Indian Americans. But even with that already tilted playbook, the notion that the people who felt morally justified in storming the U.S. Capitol and killing people. The notion that we can just move on from that without any penalty, without any justice is a fallacy. Our country can't unify and our country can't heal. Until that violent scourge is addressed and denounced with the full support of every legal option available to us. So all the attempts I've seen to draw moral equivalencies between white nationalists storming the Capitol and Black Lives Matter protesters demanding basic justice or native protesters demanding access to their sacred lands and protection for their drinking water, there is no moral equivalency here. The American Republic is in more danger than at any time it has been since the Civil War. Because some people have decided that the outcome of American democracy is not that everyone's voice is heard, but that their perspective is the only valid one. And they have demonstrated they are willing to use violence to that end. We can should and must disagree on how best to create policies that create liberty and justice in the United States. It's completely essential and necessary. The last thing in the world I want is a one-party system. I don't even really like the Democrats that much. But it is not partisan to say that every person, elected and unelected, that played a role in inciting and empowering a violent mob bent on insurrection and sedition must be held accountable. It is simply true. This week, I've been wrestling a lot with a lot of old ideas for me. What do I mean old? I mean words like good and evil, righteousness and sin. The, the kind of language I used growing up in an evangelical community to, to understand the world and what is right and what is wrong. And I'm not interested in a philosophical debate about whether good or evil exists or whether they are supernatural things or not. That is a distraction. At the end of the day, we either believe that every person is worthy of love and dignity and respect or not. And I am very interested in building a shared society with each and every person who believes that every other person is worthy of love, respect, and dignity, despite the differences we will have in policy despite the differences we will have in how we can best create a just society. I, I'm excited about that debate. But to the people who believe 
that their viewpoint is more important than other people's life and liberty to the people who stood hand in hand without complaint with actual neo-Nazis and white supremacists, I have one thing and one thing only to tell you. You will lose because the rest of us will not allow this evil and brutality to continue. I used to call myself a patriot when I was young, and I loved every idea I had about America. And as I grew older, I, I learned that fundamentally there was a lot of injustice in the country I loved so much when I truly learned not only what happened to Native Americans when Europeans arrived, but what continues to happen to them today. When I learned not only that slavery was a thing that had happened, and Jim Crow laws were a thing that had happened, but race-based disparities and injustices continued every day. I became disenfranchised, not because I hate America, but because I want to love it. The time has come that we gather together, no matter what party affiliation we have or don't have, no matter how we describe ourselves, and we demand that this country we live in, well, it just live up to its own marketing slogans. It's time for us to make this a place where there is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone. A place where, as we say in our pledge, there is liberty and justice for all. And to the people who brought fascism to the steps of the U.S. Capitol, waving a flag and a cross, you may say those words, but you don't understand them, and you don't mean them. Because the other thing I've been thinking about from my youth is fruit. <laughs> There's this wonderful allegory in Scripture that you will know a tree by its fruit, and the fruit of fascism is destruction. It's been a hard week. So how's that for getting me wound up? <laughs> oh, man. Mike, I have a question for you from Joyce DA83. Um, this person asks, if you could propose an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Well, we've already got uh, a wonderful amendment to the Constitution that almost made it and wasn't ratified called the Equal Rights Amendment. And that was going to uh, put into constitutional law uh, the notion that uh, women are equal citizens with men. That is actually something that exists in American law, but not in constitutional law, which means when something's not in the Constitution— in our system of law, it means the Congress can basically overturn it anytime they want. So uh, my first notion would be to take the Equal Rights Act and then expand it. Let's include people's gender identity and their sexual orientation, their uh, level of ability, these things we often call protected classes. Let's make them expansive and inclusive, and then let's make a, a real equal rights amendment that guarantees everyone is treated equally under the law on a constitutional level. Um, that would probably be my first choice. I would be really tempted to make electoral reform my one amendment as well. As we've talked about a little on the program, the, the first-past-the-post system that we live in now mathematically ensures that we live under a two-party system. And the two-party system is really frustrating, especially in moments like right now, where you have one kind of mediocre corporate control uh, party called the Democrats, and you have another uh, party that's gone past flirting to, to hugging uh, <laughs> white fascism. And then if you're a voter, you get to choose between, like, um, you know, being sprayed in the face with uh, lemon juice or punched in the gut. Like, these are not—like, they're not equal choices, 
But mm-hmm. if we had um, a different form of voting, we got rid of the Electoral College and changed the way that we select uh, congressional representatives and the president, we could create a system that didn't mathematically create two parties as an inevitability. So that would be a close second behind an expansive universal equal rights amendment for me. All right. Um, This one is, it might have a shorter uh, answer, I think, because it is biscuits and crazy asks biscuits and gravy or fried chicken. What are your thoughts? Well, I can tell by the username we're going to disagree because although I love biscuits and gravy, (laughs) fried chicken is just way better. It's just, it's the crunch, I think. Uh, yeah. The crunch plus the delicious succulent greasiness of fried chicken makes it <laughs> great. Second only to pizza. Oh, pizza. I mean, you can't go wrong. <laughs> I try not to. Well, I, <laughs> actually, you can definitely go wrong with pizza. I've made a habit of it. It's all about the quantity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a really good point. Um, so this one is uh, J. Tish House asks, is there any hope for this nation to return to logic and science? Hmm. Wow. You know, just today, I was reviewing a quote um, from 1995. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can find it for you real quick. And this is neat because I have a teleprompter. You can't tell that I'm looking something up. Okay, I did find it. I'm going to read you this quote, and then I'll tell you what's from after I read it. But this quote is from 1995, published in 95, written before that. Science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking. I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time. When the United States is a service and information economy, when nearly all the key manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues, when the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowingly, or excuse me, or knowledgeably question those in authority, When clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what is true, we slide almost without noticing back into superstition and darkness. That quote is from the scientist Carl Sagan. And uh, what a prescient and insightful take on what could happen in a future where people stopped prioritizing scientific thinking. I love the first line of the quote, science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking. I left my job a few years ago. And I left my job because I was working in advertising. And though I loved it, I was consumed by a mission. And that mission was to help people of faith better understand the sciences. Because I grew up in faith traditions. I was a Christian. And as an adult, I became an atheist. And I've always been really passionate about science. And I saw the ways in which science was misunderstood or outright abused by people of faith. And as I've gotten older and my work has expanded to more and more people in more and more communities, I've learned that it's not just religious people that dismiss science as a way of thinking. So the Liturgist podcast, which I used to be a part of, and Ask Science Mike, which was the show I hosted before this one, and the Cozy Robot show are all about people engaging science as a way of thinking, not as a worldview. But as a way of thinking, a way of evaluating information and trying to get more or less confidence in an idea. And then we started the Cozy Robot Show because I saw the limitations of talking about science and science only, or even science and faith, as I so often did on Ask Science Mike. Because I've noticed there's a lot of people who think scientifically, 
and they'll support science-based public policy. But then they'll use science to exclude provably true knowledge that we get from people's experiences. So I would notice, for example, that in a lot of atheistic and skeptical communities or pro-science communities, um, they were very white and very male. And when women would talk about their experiences with sexual assault or sex-based discrimination, their experiences would be discounted and ignored. Or when I would find that uh, non-white people would engage with these communities and they would talk about disparities in criminal justice or housing or economic access, these perspectives would be ignored. They would be accused of what? Following their feelings and not fact. Well, when I would dig into economic data and sociological data, I found that the experiences that women and people of color and disabled people shared about their lives was, in fact, reinforced by reams and reams and reams and reams of data. And I started to realize that I myself had a lot of access to scientific insights, but not a lot of access to my feelings. And because I couldn't cope with my own feelings of shame or my own feelings of fear or my own feelings of anger, I couldn't, what? I couldn't relate to other people when they expressed fear or anger or sadness. It would make me feel ashamed and I didn't like to feel shame. I've become obsessed with this notion that I call on this show empathetic skepticism for this reason. I don't think there's a viable way forward for humanity, unless we learn to do two things at the same time. The first thing is to learn to discern what is true from what is not. Now, we'll never know for 100% whether one thing is true or what it's not, but learn to ascribe a, a, a level of confidence that's appropriate to a given idea or claim. And understand that some of our ideas are simply that, their ideas, their beliefs we hold, that they're not based on evidence, they're ways that we navigate the world. And that's okay. We can have our own provisional knowledge to move through life. We must have provisional knowledge to move through life. And the other thing we need to do is foster a functional relationship with our feelings. I'm struck by the overlapping demographics between the people who stormed the Capitol this week and the people most likely to die by suicide in the United States of America. Somehow, the kind of numbing required to tell women and people of color and disabled people and uh, queer people and all these groups, your experiences aren't real because they don't reflect a reality I'm comfortable with, require a deadening of our own emotional experience that is toxic to its own host. We have to learn to think scientifically and relate to others empathetically and emotively in order for our society to survive. Because the approaches we've used in times like these before, authoritarianism is not new. <laughs> uh, ethnic purity movements are not new. Genocide is not new. Since the industrial era of civilization, the impact of these ideas has gotten more and more destructive. As we move into the atomic age, the consequences of fascist movements are too great to imagine. They represent an existential threat to the species, like I'm talking a potential extinction level event. So each one of us needs to do our work. And what is our work? It's learning to think critically and have access to our feelings so that we can relate to and understanding the feelings of other people, understanding that feelings are never right or wrong. They are information that also needs to be discerned. And I'm getting the, the sense that's about the time of the program where it would be good to keep the lights on. <laughs> so I'm going to switch over really quick and talk about 
this week's sponsors. And we have a couple of really amazing sponsors this week. The first uh, sponsor this week is the Overview Program. We've got uh, starting January 20th, that's a Wednesday, an eight-week program that we'd love for you to be a part of. It's the Overview Program Orbits Edition. This is where we're going to have uh, up to 200 people and me going through a program that is all about managing growth and change in your life. 2020 has been a hard year. 2021 is off to a difficult start. And when we are trying to grow and change in such difficult circumstances, it can be good to have a system to manage that change and a community to provide the social validation science tells us we all need to be different. One of the participants of the program is named Mark, and Mark says, this program changed the way I manage change. The tools that Mike offered and taught me to use are nothing short of life-changing. And because this is a really difficult time, we've reduced the price of the program so that everyone can participate, and we've even offered a special COVID relief pricing that you, there's no screening, you just, if you need it, you get it. Uh, and you can learn all about that at overviewprogram.com. Again, if you'd like to go through an eight-week program with me every Wednesday, go to overviewprogram.com. This week, we're also so thankful for KiwiCo, a longtime sponsor of this program. Uh, KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids of all ages to make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. You might have heard those abbreviated as STEAM before. Every crate they send is designed by experts and tested by children. They spend over a thousand hours designing and testing every crate. Now, when they arrive, it's a subscription product. They arrive, you get this crate, it's a box. And inside the box is absolutely everything. All the supplies needed to complete that month's project, which includes detailed instructions so children and adults can complete these activities on their own without assistance, increasing their learning, their retention, and their sense of satisfaction. You know, this week I went ahead and grabbed the Eureka crate that came to my door because it was a, a bespoke set of headphones that I'm going to build myself. I'm really excited about it. I built a ukulele. We built a trebuchet, all these amazing things that teach us about physics and uh, history and art. Kids are able to play and learn independently because of the kid-friendly instructions. And uh, there's something new to learn all year long. So if you'd like to get started today learning more about STEAM for you or your family, just head over to KiwiCo.com and use promo code COZYROBOT. You'll get 30% off your first month at, again, K-I-W-I-C-O.com. Use promo code COZYROBOTS. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> What's next? All right, uh, Mike, we have a question from Nerd Cleric. As a pastor who has has gone through several years of deconstruction with you, Roar Liturgists, and many others, what would you say to a pastor who is struggling with institutional religion? Hmm. Wow. I'm sorry. I'd start by saying I'm sorry. Um, institutional religion is tough. <laughs> I mean, people get very serious about their religious beliefs. Theology has caused wars in our species. And so the fact that it gets a little heated today is actually a lowering of temperature. Um, although, I mean, the intersection of white evangelicalism and white nationalism, and that is a, a, a religious political movement and coalition in the United States, really can't be ignored. Um, I am still a Christian. I call myself a Christian. I engage in regular Christian spiritual practices, but I am in no way an institutional Christian anymore. Um, when we are not in a pandemic lockdown, I like to go be in person at a small 
Episcopal church in my community is real laid back. I get to take the Eucharist and be a part of a liturgy, and that's important to me. But uh, there's no chance I would like join a committee or <laughs> get involved in the institutional gearing of a church. I think I think American Christianity got too American and not very Christian because it became about boards and elections and hierarchy and marketing and revenue and all these kinds of things that I just don't see reflected in the small and intimate beauty of a God who is love, which is at the very heart of the Christian faith. So I just want to be honest. I could I can think of ways in which I could say something that was charismatic and encouraging to you, but it would also be duplicitous. I've kind of given up on the Christian faith as an institutional thing, but I have profound and genuine and sincere faith and love. For me, my Christian faith is made up of, uh, oh, that great cloud of witnesses, the people I see who are living their faith in a earnest, sincere, just, and loving way. Those people make me want to keep going. Some of those people don't even publicly or privately identify as Christians at all. I think you're listening to some of the right people. Uh, you know, my friend Richard Rohr is um, Catholic. <laughs> Talk about institutional Christianity with baggage. That's as institutional and as heavy baggage as the church gets. And yet, Father Rohr remains committed to the church for his whole life and committed to living his life in a just, loving, and supportive way. Uh, so I think you're looking at the right places, and I'll be here cheering you on. Um, but how to redeem the institution, I don't know. Uh, all I can manage is just trying to live the faith. Garrett Hoffman asks, last episode, you mentioned being a forever renter and briefly said it was an issue with the buying industry. Can you tell me more about where I can learn about such issues? Gosh, that is a fantastic question. Uh, I am not ready to answer sufficiently. Um, not at all. <laughs> so I can tell you, um, I've done a lot of reading. Um the mortgage industry is uh, – read about redlining. Redlining is something you can Google. You could start there, and redlining will help you understand the racist past and presence of mortgage lending and the way mortgages and property ownership have been used to enrich white communities in a radical and disproportionate way uh, from non-white communities in the United States, especially black communities and native communities. Um, basically, the GI Bill plus, um, you know, uh, government-backed mortgages for white GIs following World War II. And then in the Jim Crow era, redline mortgages have, have acted as direct capital investment into white communities at the expense of everybody else. And I don't have a problem with... Uh, government funds being used to back mortgages. I just think everyone should get the same chance. And so as a personal choice, I've decided I will just not participate in the wealth transfer that is the mortgage industry. And so I rent my home. Um, and then this is like a really kind of honest and difficult answer. I also am not sure where I would be comfortable placing a long-term financial investment over a period of 30 years right now. We, um, the frightening thing about climate change is that, you know, if you look at a given year like 2020, um, 2020 might end up being the coolest year of the 2020s, even though it's one of the hottest years on record. So the climate is going to be changing so dramatically and so rapidly, and that rate of change is going to accelerate 
that I'm not sure where I'd be confident um, I wouldn't lose money on a mortgage over a period of 30 years. So I think it's actually smarter and more pragmatic to have the flexibility to be renting or leasing your housing so that as climate migrations begin and intensify, you're in a position to not be held down to a piece of soil that you own. And I know that is, listen, I, I can just imagine all the heartbeats right here, right now, okay? So take a deep breath. I'm not here to scare you. I am never here to scare you. Uh, but I am also here to be honest. And the, the climate, the carbon debt we've been building up, the bill is starting to become due. So when I combine a very racialized and exploited financial system attached to housing, and I combine that to a very daunting uh, climate change backdrop over the exact amount of time a mortgage is, even a 15-year Gosh, the climate's going to be a lot different 15 years from now, much more different than today is from 15 years ago, by the way. Um, I don't think that home ownership is um, wise or just right now. And if you're a homeowner, I'm not judging you. <laughs> this is, I'm in a very small fringe position here, but I suspect that maybe five years from now, I will be in a much less fringe position. And 15 or 20 years from now, I, I don't imagine that very many people are going to own homes at all. Came in from Twitter uh, twice. And um, this person is really excited to have an answer. So I'm excited to throw it your way. My seven-year-old daughter has wondered what would happen if there was no moon. She's even wondered if the lack of a moon would have affected the history of the planet. And that's from Stephen Stagel on Twitter. Okay. Gosh, that's a great question. And I think going to be a fun break from the last one. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, the moon's history is inseparable from the Earth's history. The first thing I would say, and this is really important, a lot of people don't think about this in their daily lives because there's no reason to, but every bit of matter in the universe is attracted to every other bit of grab of universe, every other bit of matter in the universe by gravity at the speed of light. So these two pins are attracted to each other gravitationally at the speed of light. Now, it doesn't matter because their gravitational pull compared to the ground below me, the Earth itself is insignificant. So the Earth's gravity, if I let go of these pins, they drop and not click together, right? Because the Earth is accelerating the pins toward it um, at 9.8 meters per second squared. You don't have to worry about that. We won't get into the math. All I need you to know is that all matter bends space-time according to Einstein's relativity to create gravitational attraction. And the two things that determine how strong gravitational pull are is the amount of mass a given object has and then its distance from another object. So there's something called the inverse square law. Don't worry about that. If you don't know what it is, it just tells us that gravity gets weaker the further you get from something. And so the moon is the closest, biggest thing to the earth. And the earth and the moon are kind of like these two pins when we think about the sun. So the major player in our solar system, the reason it's called a solar system is because most of the gravitational bending that happens in our region happens because of the sun. So the Earth is orbiting the sun and the moon is orbiting the Earth because the, the moon is trapped in the Earth's gravity well. Ooh, wow, so many words. Now, here's why that's important. Almost everything about our daily lives is impacted by the presence of the moon. The fact that we have 24-hour days. Did you know that shortly after the Earth formed, a day was only about six hours, and by a day, I mean a day and night. So you had about three hours of sunlight and three hours of darkness. What? Because the Earth spun so fast. And then the moon gravitationally acted as a break that slowed down the rotation of the Earth, which did what? 
stabilized the temperature, right? It lets things get warm and kind of stay warm and then cool off and not have spikes and drops in temperature that happen with shorter day cycles. The length of our day is essential to the fact that life can exist on this planet. And then we have an atmosphere, and Mars doesn't. What's going on there? We both have molten cores, or at least Mars at one time had a molten core. Well, the gravitational stress of the moon pulling on the Earth all the time actually puts energy into the core of the Earth, and that keeps that core liquid, which creates a magnetic force field called the magnetosphere around our planet, protecting us both from solar radiation uh, and from um, having our atmosphere blown away by solar wind. So we have what? less radiation that would damage our cells, and we can breathe as life forms. Those are really nice things. So without the moon, we'd have fast days, probably no atmosphere, no plate tectonics. There'd be no life here. To say nothing of the fact that both the moon and Jupiter physically and because of their gravity, redirect a lot of asteroid impacts away from the Earth. So we deal with less rocks falling on us from space because of Jupiter and because of our moon. Well, we're not done. The moon is also responsible for most of our tidal action. If the moon was gone, we'd continue to have tides. Those tides would be solar instead of lunar. The sun is very big. The sun would still exert a pull on our oceans. But most of our tidal action comes from the moon. And our tides and tidal action are a major part of how life exists on this planet because they impact our ocean currents and the way that nutrients are cycled between the surface and the bottom of the ocean and the tidal ecosystems that act as points of interaction between land-based and, and ocean-based ecosystems. So without the moon, those tidal ecosystems wouldn't form. We wouldn't have the same ocean current cycles. Basically, the more I look bit by bit by bit by bit at the scientific evidence, the moon is essential in life forming and life continuing to exist. We couldn't be here without it in our current state. Um, and if the moon suddenly vanished, we wouldn't last long without it. So um, I'm so glad it's there. Mike. Underscore Zings asks, will you be getting vaccinated? Absolutely. I can't wait. I just I can't wait to get vaccinated for COVID-19. First of all, I've been vaccinated for so many other things. It's, this won't be my first vaccination. I'm very excited. I never had to worry about polio. I was vaccinated for polio. I've never had the measles. The measles used to kill lots and lots of people. I never had to worry about the measles or mumps or rubella. I got a vaccine. Vaccines save lives. This incontroversial, probably behind sanitation and hygiene, things like uh, running water, sewage, and hand washing. Vaccinations may have saved more lives than any other medical technology in human history. And COVID-19 is a tough, tough virus on accident. You know, coronaviruses aren't usually so lethal to people, but coronaviruses do mutate. Coronavirus right now is mutating, creating different strains that are more contagious, but no less lethal, which means more people will die from them because more people catch it, even as the same lethality, that's more deaths. I'm tired of sitting alone in my home all the time. My kids miss their friends. It's not developmentally normal or appropriate for children to be home this long. This is not good for me. It's not good for my family. I can't wait to get the vaccine. Vaccines aren't without risks. Vaccines carry infinitesimal risk, but they do carry risk. But the risk to me of being vaccinated against COVID-19 is so much lower than the risks of what would happen to me from COVID-19. And not only that, herd immunity, the thing that happens when enough people get a virus or a vaccine, 
uh, makes the viruses can't spread the community anymore, protect people who can't get vaccines. And those are the very people whose bodies are often hardest hit by disease, people who are immunocompromised or have other underlying health conditions that prevent their immune systems from dealing with a vaccine also means their immune systems can't deal with the virus. So I can't wait to get vaccinated. I saw this tweet that I enjoyed so much. I would love to quote who it's from. I don't remember the name, but you can use Twitter search function to find it. And this person said, people are concerned there's a microchip in the vaccine. Well, if I can get drunk at Olive Garden again, you can put a whole iPod Nano in the vaccine. Like, it, it, I am so ready for this vaccine. And the kind of, I'm not sure the vaccine is safe thing is dangerous. And the anti-vaccine movement right now, those, if a significant number of people refuse to take the COVID vaccine, we can't reopen society safely ever. So this is a serious thing. Vaccines go through rigorous testing, multiple phases of trial to test for their safety and their efficacy. We know how dangerous COVID-19 is. And we know the COVID-19 vaccine is much, 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 much less dangerous. Effectively, zero dangerous. Um, to anyone who takes it. So uh, I'm going to take the vaccine when it's my turn. I'm not going to try to skip the process and get the vaccine before essential healthcare workers. I'm not going to try to get it before elderly people. Uh, I'm going to wait until my turn is up. But once the vaccine is available to me, I will get it as soon as I possibly can. Not once, but twice is as necessary to ensure immunity against COVID. Mike, I just want to address some of the comments coming in. My audio is a lot louder than your audio and um, Tanner's working on it. And I just want to let everybody know that it will be fixed by the time it goes on Spotify, Apple Music and everywhere else you can listen. Uh, in the meantime, <laughs> here is your last question. I just turned it out. Oh, that distorts. Nope. OK, I don't know what to do there. I just tried turning it up, but it'll, uh, it'll get crunchy. Okay. Um, so here's uh, another question. At Pentagrams asks, <laughs> better ban conspiracy theorists from major social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, or not? That is a good question. Is it better to ban conspiracy theorists or not there's not there's not there's no or in that question that because any answer that a yes or no is just not going to get us there it's not just the people it's the incentives in the technology the structure algorithmically behind sites like twitter and facebook and YouTube are tailor-made to conspiracy theories. The interaction of the technology and human psychology is always going to create extremism in ideas, including conspiracy theories, because the math behind these platforms is designed to drive engagement above everything else. And we have really good reporting that data scientists and experts within Facebook in particular started testing different versions of the algorithm that drove less conspiracies and less extreme views among their users, but they lowered engagement. And when Mark Zuckerberg and other executives at Facebook saw that gap, they said, you know what? Don't put that into the practice because we need the engagement to drive our stock price and revenue up. So it's not just the people. Twitter and Facebook and Google, in the way they've architected their products, are culpable, not even complicit. They're active participants in this kind of disinformation economy that we live in. Before I even talked about what I would do with people on the platform, 
I would change the algorithms that display information. I think the most responsible way to structure a social media platform is to show you a reverse chronological list of people you follow. That's how Twitter used to work. You didn't see anything other than the people you saw, and you saw the most recent thing someone posted first and the oldest thing last. And we didn't have these explosions of viral content in those days. And Twitter was a lot safer place to be for everyone. Facebook used to work that way as well. Then it started chasing engagement. And when machine learning algorithms pay attention to what drives people's engagement, what makes us engage? Fear, anger, moral outrage, loneliness. So we got to start with the code. We got to start with the products themselves after we've done that. Then we can address the user problems. People don't understand the First Amendment in the United States or its equivalents in other nations. The First Amendment does not guarantee your right to say whatever you want to say, wherever you want to say it. It's just not there. If you read the First Amendment, if you actually look at the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment says Congress won't make a law Congress won't make a law that takes away your right to freedom of speech. It means the government, the government doesn't have control over what you say. But it doesn't say that what you have to say won't have consequences. In constitutional law and in other law, there are things you can say that have legal consequences like slander and libel. In fact, right in our Constitution, sedition, a form of speech is illegal. You can say it, and the government can hold you accountable. But the Constitution and the First Amendment say nothing about your right to say something on my podcast. <laughs> Just not there. So if I opened up my podcast and said, we're going to have people from the audience come on and say whatever they want to say, I could do that. And then if somebody said something I didn't like, I can just turn them off. And the Constitution doesn't say that's censorship because this podcast is actually my speech that I'm inviting you into. So it is necessary and essential for people hosting speech to have some capacity to regulate what is said in their platforms. Now, the question is, and this is a good question, is should social media platforms like YouTube or TikTok or Twitter or Facebook be treated more like publishers are treated? The New York Times and the Washington Post and the USA Today, they have a lot more accountability to what appears that they publish than a Twitter has to what appears in its content feed. And the people in Silicon Valley that own these companies, they, they squeal anytime we bring this up because they say we couldn't make money if we had to be accountable to what people say on our platform because moderation would be too expensive. I don't know what the right answer is here, but it's a question we need to ask. And we need to understand that some speech is dangerous. We have the data now. We're seeing how easily in this algorithmic presentation, Conspiracy theories reach large scales to the point they are a genuine threat to people's quality of life and ability to live at all. But I think it's a distraction to start there. We need to start with the architecture of these products, the way that speech is selected and displayed to be highlighted on these platforms is completely inextricable from the problems we see with the speech that people say on these platforms. In many ways, no one has been more enriched by the disinformation campaign of Donald Trump in the last few years than Twitter itself. And so, of course, it took them a long time to act. Their revenues and their stock price was based on the engagement that Donald Trump brought to their platform even as Donald Trump weakened democracy on a global basis? What a wonderful question. Thank you so much for asking. And that's it for us. Uh, How do I? Victory there and Grace, we go. thank you. 
we made it through our first show with the whole team here. We did it. Before we go, though, I want to poll the audience uh, what you guys think of this new format. It was definitely clunky tonight, as we knew it would be with our audio and our switching. We're going to get it down. Uh, but we invite you guys to tell us what, what you thought. Um, and thanks for entertaining us. Yeah, absolutely. We always enjoy seeing y'all out there. You guys can let me know on Twitter and Instagram what you thought about this uh, episode tonight. We will be listening. Likewise, all of you cozy robots can let us know on the Discord or on Patreon. We will be there. And as you know, the Cozy Robot Show is made possible by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank each and every cozy robot. Our show's producers, Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazana, who you saw for the first time tonight, and Greg Nordine. Our music is by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Andrew Galecki. Production support and my assistant is Caitlin Armstad. Designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. And wardrobe stylist, craft services, and key to my whole life is Ginny McCarg. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and I just can't wait to see you again next week. Take care, friends.